Hello and welcome to the Miami Law Explainer, a new podcast from the University of Miami School of Law. At the Explainer, we take a deep dive into the news of the day, unpacking Supreme Court cases and decisions, sussing out hot political and social issues, and discussing legal matters that are just too interesting to ignore. I'm your host, Annette Uges. While Brexit and Trump's upending of trade deals and retaliatory tariffs are gobbling up the headlines, the explainer would like to take a deep cleansing breath and look at the world picture through a wider lens. As surely as the clock is ticking down with just over six months to go before Britain's exit from the EU, a withdrawal agreement is far from settled, even within Theresa May's Conservative Party. The news that a no-deal would wreak havoc on airline travel to EU countries adds a gloomy new wrinkle. On the other side of the pond, the Trump administration's imposition of tariffs has led to negative reactions from many sectors, farmers, workers, businesses, and U.S. trading partners among them. But the tariff target seems to continue to widen with each news cycle. With us today are Caroline Bradley, a former lecturer at the London School of Economics and Political Science and an expert on matters of British and EU financial law, and Kathleen Clausen, who prior to Miami Law was Associate General Counsel at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, where she represented the United States in international trade dispute proceedings and served as a legal advisor for the U.S. in international trade negotiations. Let's join Explainer producer Catherine Skip for more. Good morning, Caroline and Kathleen. Thanks for joining us. Judging from the headlines, it would seem like the sky is falling. Can you give us a little TikTok on what brought us where we are today? So I'm going to talk about Brexit. Um, in the summer of 2016, the United Kingdom held a referendum on whether the UK should leave the European Union. It has been a member of what it has, is now the European Union since the early 1970s. But the UK's history as part of Europe has always been somewhat problematic. UK politicians had often wanted to blame the European Union for problems that they uh, didn't want to take responsibility for themselves. And uh, in recent years, a new political party grew up, the UK Independence Party, and they advocated very forcefully that the UK should leave the European Union. This uh, started pulling apart the Conservative Party, and David Cameron, when he was Prime Minister, decided that the UK should have a referendum on the idea of whether the UK should leave the European Union. Most people were very much surprised by the result, because in the summer of 2016, the citizens of the UK voted to leave the European Union. In March 2017, the UK gave a notification to the European Union that it would in fact leave, and this started rolling a two-year process of negotiation on the terms on which the UK will leave. Uh, it's not a surprise, perhaps, that uh, these negotiations have been very difficult, and we still, only six months before the date for the UK to leave, have no idea on what terms the UK will in fact leave. Kathleen, what do you see happening in the United States since the Trump administration took power? Well, there are a number of things going on in the trade front uh, with the Trump administration, Catherine. Let me highlight three, uh, and maybe we can speak about uh, the the third, uh, the most, um, as that I think is the most important. The first is a renegotiation or changing uh, reconsideration of certain U.S. trade agreements. In fact, most U.S. trade agreements, including the abandoning of some of those trade agreements that had already been negotiated, namely the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement that the Obama administration had negotiated just at the end of the last Obama administration. 
The second is a particular posture that the Trump administration has adopted at the World Trade Organization. And the third is the imposition of three types of tariffs on products from trading partners. Those have come about after investigations into national security concerns regarding those products by the Commerce Department in one instance, and investigations into the unfair practices by China carried out by the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative in the other instance. What's the worldwide impact? What, what will be the worldwide impact of, of Brexit? Well, that's a huge question, and I'm going to focus on part of that question. So the three uh, topics that I want to focus on, firstly, is that Brexit has created a vast amount of uncertainty for business. It's been more than two years since the referendum was held. We still don't know what the future relationship between the UK and the EU will be. We don't even know whether the UK will crash out of the EU without a deal. This is the hard Brexit that people talk about. And so I think it makes sense to focus on the idea that how business is done depends on the rules that are in place. If the rules change, then business has to be done differently. One example, one really important example, relates to financial institutions. The European Union has a passporting system in which a bank that's established in one member state can do business throughout the EU on the basis of its home authorization to do business. After Brexit, it seems that banks based in London won't benefit from this passporting system in the future. And so what we see is a number of banks, including major US banks like JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs, are moving significant numbers of staff to other EU locations. The major locations for movement have been Frankfurt and Dublin, but financial institutions have also been moving to Paris, Amsterdam, Luxembourg and Madrid. There's also a big issue with respect to supply chains being disrupted, supply chains whereby businesses uh, create products um, and move them around uh, the world, are based on a set of rules. And so when we move from a situation where there is free movement of goods within the European Union to a situation where there will be likely no longer free movement of goods between the UK and the EU, border crossing will become slower and more complicated. And so UK firms have been losing business as a result of this, but it causes problems for anybody whose supply chain interacts at any point with the UK. All of this uncertainty imposes costs on businesses around the world. So the second issue I want to focus on relates to financial markets. Um, London is a major global financial centre. It's the only really significant global financial centre in the EU at the moment. And what we see is EU member states fighting with each other or competing to try to make sure that they win uh, this battle, that Frankfurt or Paris is going to be the new EU financial centre. It's not at all obvious what's going to happen here. In fact, it's possible that the European Union could lose out to financial centres like Singapore or New York. There are some really complicated technical issues about whether European institutions are going to make things much harder for UK-based financial institutions. So the European Central Bank has suggested uh, that it might like to move clearing of euro-denominated securities into the European Union and not allow that to happen in the UK after Brexit. And the... um, There are issues for bank resolution. The single resolution board has even suggested that banks under its supervision might be required to hold instruments that are governed by uh, the law of a European Union member state and not English law. 
English law at the moment is one of the major laws governing financial transactions, and so this would be a dramatic change. And the third issue I want to talk about is what happens to UK trading relationships with the rest of the world. And I think this links with uh, some of Kathleen's interests. Um, I think that um, there is a problem for the UK because the UK can't negotiate future trading relationships with other countries until after it leaves the European Union. While it's a member of the European Union, the EU has the power to make treaties with respect to trade. The UK government announced that what it would like to do was just basically pretend it was still a member of all of the treaties that the EU was a party to and invite other countries to engage in this pretense with it. Uh, that sounds somewhat surprising to anybody with uh, more than a semester's legal training, I think. Um, and needless to say, other countries are finding it difficult to imagine how they're going to deal with this problem. And stateside, Kathleen, uh, the recent tariffs uh, really a power play, or is the administration responding to a legitimate concern? Well, I think, Catherine, that the the there's a little bit of both going on in some respects. You've heard some commentators refer to what's happening now as a bit of a trade war. And we can actually think about several different fronts that make up the trade war. The confluence of events that have led to them is important as we think about each piece. So first, the first trade front, we might consider the structural changes that have taken place since the creation of the multilateral trading system. And there I'm thinking specifically of the World Trade Organization, the WTO. The creators of the WTO, their interests have diverged since the creation in 1995, at the same time that global economic power has become more dispersed. Most importantly, we've seen the rise of China as an economic power. No one disputes that China is acting inconsistently with the rules of the WTO. The question that that leads to is whether we need a redesign of the rules given China's entrance into the WTO. Some see the China issue as being manageable within the system, while others do not. The Obama administration's strategy was to address China within the WTO, and some think we still should try. The second trade front has to do with the divide between the way the United States sees the World Trade Organization's role and the way the U.S. trading partners do. The U.S. sees the role of the multilateral system differently. It sees especially the dispute settlement system differently from others. This divide has become more salient recently. For the U.S., the rules that make up the WTO system should be viewed as contracts, not as a sort of constitution to the entire global trading system. What does that mean? That means that the way that the decision makers in the dispute settlement system reach their decisions should be a light touch. It should be a sort of application of the rules and not an elaborate interpretation. To the U.S., this system, this important global economic system, is owned by the state members and should be controlled by the state members, that is, the countries that are members, not by these adjudicators. Thirdly, we see this political maneuvering, both domestically and internationally, in which the Trump administration appears to be responding to a concern that the U.S. has appeared weak within this multilateral system. And so now these actions are trying to make the U.S. appear and be stronger. 
The perception is that the World Trade Organization, and again, particularly this dispute settlement body within it, are not working in the interests of the United States. And it turns out we still have available domestic tools, statutory tools, that enable the president to take matters into his own hands and to impose tariffs on our trading partners rather than bring them to a dispute settlement proceeding in Geneva. Fourthly, these concerns are not new. The United States has been concerned about certain aspects of the multilateral system, particularly the dispute settlement system, for a long time, but unfortunately, no one has effectuated change. Great. Um, in, Can I in- jump in here? Because I think that what you're saying about the attitude to the WTO dispute resolution system has a lot of parallels with the UK situation. One of the things that the Conservative government has been very unhappy with over the years is the way the European Court of Justice has developed its law in a way that reaches into the legal systems of the member states. And I think that's something of the same sort of issue that the US has sometimes had with WTO dispute resolution panels having implications for governance of countries. Great. Yeah, that is my question. Have have we been here before, either in the US or in the UK, like on the brink like this? Or is this a completely new situation? So the UK has ever since it joined, well, from even before it joined what is now the European Union, uh, has had um, complicated views about its relationship with the rest of Europe. Um In the period after the Second World War, when the European project was started off, the UK saw a much looser free trade relationship as being desirable, and France wasn't very keen on the UK joining anyway. And then once the UK did in fact join, it's been one of the countries that has had more special deals as a component of its membership than um, other, other member states have had. So in some ways, it's often seen by other member states as being a bit of a troublemaker. I think this discounts a little bit some of the quite significant influence that the UK has had actually on the development of EU law and on the uh, work of the EU institutions. So I think that Although the UK has been a troublesome member of the EU, it's also um, been a significant actor in the development of the EU into the entity it is now. And Kathleen, is the US in a unique situation or, or is this something we've done before? Well, with respect to the WTO piece, dating back to 2001, as I said, the United States and other members have raised the alarm on some of these issues. On the tariff piece, the story is a little bit different. There have been moments in U.S. history where very high tariffs have been imposed. They haven't ended up so well. Uh, And those times uh, particularly are are moments when Congress was uh, developing the, the tariff rates. But since 1934, Congress has largely delegated trade authority to the president, sometimes with very few checks or balances, which is becoming more of an issue now, as we've seen. But all three of the specific statutory tools that are being used for these significant tariffs have been used before. In fact, some have been used hundreds of times, 120 times in the last 50 years. But a few things are different now. So uh, we have seen these, these tools used, but what's different now is the expanse and the impact of those tariffs. Now, also with the WTO in place, a question as to whether they are consistent with the rules that we developed in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. Does anything tie what's going on in the U.S. with what's going on in in Britain from a trade standpoint? 
From a political standpoint, I think that some of the issues that link both situations are the feeling of people who have been left behind, right? The So I'm not sure, yeah, we could talk about it as free trade, we could talk about it as economic globalization, but the way in which economic globalization has been managed at the domestic level in many countries around the world has involved an increase in inequality. And I think this increase in inequality is part of what drives the politics that have produced both Brexit and the election of President Trump. Do we see the road out of this or it's all like, ooh, let's see what happens? Well, with respect to the tariffs, one thing that I've been following is the way that Congress has been responding. And so recently we have seen Congress try to get back in the game on tariffs to try to initiate legislation that would rein in some of the authority that it had previously delegated to the president. Whether any of those bills will be successful remains to be seen. In particular, they would likely have to override a veto. That would be inevitable if they do make it through Congress. A second way we might see some action in response on the domestic side is in the court system. So there is a challenge to the constitutionality of one of the statutes that's being used to impose the tariffs. If the courts were to find the statute to be unconstitutional, well, then again, we might have an opportunity to see some change. I might add one further area of of possible change, and that is, again, at the WTO, although it's a slow-moving system, there are now over a dozen different cases underway that would challenge the tariffs that the United States has imposed, but also uh, the ones that have been imposed in response. So both the United States and its trading partners, they're suing one another uh, over the the different trade uh, tariffs that have been imposed. So if if any of those were to come uh, to conclusion, then we might see some increased pressure on, on making changes to what's been happening. That's also unlikely, uh, given the passage of time that would be required to reach the final stages, and also given what's happening in the appeals mechanism system at the World Trade Organization, where several of the members of the appeals mechanism have, uh, that is, the individuals who who decide appeals, have finished their terms and none others have been appointed. Uh, And so in, in the absence of individuals to decide the appeals, even if those cases were to come to fruition, that is, even if they were to be concluded at the initial panel level stage, uh, an appeal would not be able to be completed. And so a number of legal questions are lingering uh, in the WTO context. Any final thoughts? So I think uh, the only thing I'd like to add is a sort of reflection on how various sorts of stresses create problems in multilateral uh, treaty situations. The European Union, since 2008, has been dealing with a financial crisis, a migration crisis, and now dealing with Brexit. These sorts of problems aren't going to go away. The migration crisis is ongoing, and it's only going to get worse in response to climate change. And somehow, I believe that we need to figure out how in these multilateral environments to be able to deal with the sorts of crises uh, that we face uh, without everything falling apart. Great. Well, I know we'll be continuing to check back with you as this moves forward. Thanks for your time and your insights. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks for joining us on The Explainer. We hope you'll subscribe on iTunes and comment and follow us on social media. 
Next week, we'll be with constitutional scholar Charlton Copeland and political scientist Gregory Coger to drill into voter disenfranchisement and gerrymandering on the road to the midterm elections. And that's all for this episode of The Explainer. Let us know what and whom you'd like to hear from at Miami Law in future shows. I'm your host, Annette Uguez, and we'll be back with you soon with another episode featuring legal news you can sink your ears into. This week's show was brought to you by Miami Law's Intensive Legal English Plus LLM program, the three-semester curriculum designed for foreign lawyers who need to improve their English proficiency before the start of their graduate degree studies. For more information, visit law.miami.edu and search for Intensive English.